0: Friends, before I begin, shall we bow our heads in prayer and commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, in your mercy and grace, will you meet us where we are, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, bring to life the words that come off these pages, and through this earthen vessel before you, Lord, broken, and yet you pour out your Spirit through each and every one of us, And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's indeed good to be back here. Um, The last week for about eight days I was off in Korea uh, and uh, it's, it's a bit strange coming back to our own church, you know, you actually hear English. Uh, in Korea, everybody just speaks Korean and all the food is Korean and the way they pray is Korean, uh, you, you come back and you suddenly feel, okay, I'm coming back to a center of gravity here. But one thing I've taken away from understanding about the Koreans is, um, is in a way the way they pray, uh, when they pray, everybody starts lifting up their voices and praying and you hear this great... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost waves of sound and voices uh, lifting up. So I wonder sometimes what would happen if our churches started to pray as fervently as they would. Uh, Maybe we might need to organise a trip and take you there because I describe it as one thing and you're there. It's a totally different thing. But I share this not to tell you about what's going on in, in my past. I share this also to give you a sort of an idea about what uh, was happening in this, uh, in this text that we're reading. For those of you who are visiting us, you actually have in our bulletin, in the middle of our bulletin, a sermon outline with uh, notes where you can fill in the blanks, uh, but also a reading plan. And for our members who have been going through the reading, they would have started on Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and uh, last Friday we would have ended with uh, chapter 3 or chapter 4. So I hope you've been going through that. But if you recall and there's a brief summary of where our readings have brought us to uh, jesus ascends and he tells his people wait in the city until power is poured out on you and they were gathered together in prayer and then the holy spirit is poured out on them on like pentecost and this flames uh a light upon each and every person and this sound of many tongues uh, came together and that to me was my korean experience You go there and you hear these voices and these tongues which you don't understand and there were people from japan from uh, indonesia malaysia uh, various parts and korean all lifted up and all moving Uh, you get all these goosebumps and you feel something's happening in this particular place now at this moment when uh, peter as well as john and the others who are there uh, begins to preach uh, and they they speak in tongues and people understand them from different nations and says how is this possible these are fishermen who are native to galilee and they start speaking in our language when, since when did they become cosmopolitan and they see something amazing happened and peter preaches and in that day thousands are added to them i do wonder what would happen if thousands were added to our group there would be no place, you know. At full capacity, we would only be able to fit maybe about 700 here. At a real push, maybe a thousand spilling out, everybody standing. But Peter preaches a rather succinct sermon. We don't know how long, and maybe this was maybe truncated or simplified. But many join them. And I recall sometimes when we meet with our China uh, friends, uh, we have conferences with pastors from different places, and so we meet some of these Chinese pastors, and they come along and say, oh, how's your church doing? And it's says, oh, persecution, uh, we're being forced underground. Many have to leave overseas, and we're just a very small church, and so when we ask them uh, how many in your congregation? Because they said they were small. (laughs) Small for them is about 3,000 to 5,000. And so when I say ours is about 600, I say, oh, very small. (laughs) But what would happen to us if suddenly God did something to add to our numbers? Would we be able to cope? And the reality is church now and church during the time of Peter, and the Apostles, where we talk about the Acts, uh, the book of Acts, is really more about the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because it's the movement of the Holy Spirit that suddenly it goes about and it spreads. Has it happened in Malaysia before? Yes. It has happened in numerous spots where some places we don't even know. It has happened in interior villages where Orang Asli people come and say, Pastor. <laughs> something's happening we don't know what we don't have enough space and people are just gathering under trees and we're just putting out tents it has happened before and God has added to their number it's happening in China although we don't see it so visibly it is like a wildfire in the underground the word is just being spread and things are happening quite different from our gospel where we say, okay, when the, when you have a church then we must, when you have a gathering of people, we must start building churches and we must start doing this, have good sound systems, have good eating places and so on. No. In this case, thousands were added and they were added pretty much to house churches. The only way you can actually accommodate 3,000, 5,000, and most of the time they only count the men. They don't count the whole family together. The only way to accommodate this sudden growth is to begin to have little gatherings, house churches. And so in all the books and the epistles that we see in the, uh, in the New Testament, Paul and uh, Peter address house churches, say greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so in this particular house church. But here's how chapter 2 ends, and I read this in order to us to bring it to the context in chapter 3. These new uh, believers, right, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, several commonalities here. One, they shared everything in their possession. So question, diagnostic question to ask you now. What would it take for you to be able to share all your possessions to those who are added to your numbers? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question. What would it take for you to be willing to share all your possessions to those who have need. Are you seriously thinking about this? Because the answer that you give to that determines in a way how you understand the following passages. Let me put it again in another context. When Jesus uh, came to Peter, and john and andrew and said follow me they dropped everything all the fishing business and all that they had they dropped everything and followed jesus immediately what would it take for someone to leave their career and their family business in order to follow a carpenter who is going around talking about certain things If I were to seriously put myself in those shoes, I think I would only do that if I encountered something that was worth giving up everything for. In other words, they were calling me to a higher, bigger, larger vision of things than what I was holding on to. Same thing you do with a kid. If he's got in his hand ice cream... (laughs) the only way he's going to let go of the ice cream in order to get something better would be you offer him something that's even better than ice cream. And so these people, these this, uh, thousands of people who had come had encountered something that was worth more than all that they had, the possessions that they had. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds this precious pearl and when he's found it, he gives everything in order to have that pearl. You let go of all these small, insignificant things to grab on to the greater, larger thing. And so with that understanding in mind, which is, which is how this uh, Acts has been written, we go into uh, chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we have this picture of a, 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 a lame person from birth. So let's read that. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Okay, Some of your books would say uh, 9 in the ninth hour or 3 in the afternoon. Jewish timetable begins 6 a.m. in the morning, roughly. So you add 9, that's uh, 3 p.m. So the next question that might come to you, okay, so if the Jews pray at 3 p.m., are there any other times that they pray? Yes. Uh, 9 a.m. in the morning, 12 in the noon, 3 p.m., okay? A bit like the Muslims, you know, five times a day, but effectively every every three or four hours, uh, we do that. Now, I'm not saying this or so that, okay, uh, let me put in my diary now, I'm going to do this. No, it's not a ritual thing. But it was a pattern that was established. Uh, so I'd ask, do you establish a pattern of prayer for yourself? But in this case, that's not the focus. The focus is about, Peter and John, who are going to the temple to pray. So they are almost going to the temple daily. That's also something for us to think about. Do you come to church daily? I live next door, so that's a given. I, I, I come every day. But I know when I was in Korea, every day when we were there, we see people just streaming in and going out. Streaming in and going out. Don't know what they do, but they tell me that everybody there owns the church. In other words, they are part of the church. They don't go there and they say, "Ah, This thing is not fixed. Uh, Why is maintenance not doing their job? No. uh, What they tell me is uh, the evangelists, the elders, the pastors, they get their hands dirty. I asked an evangelist, So what does your role do? Do you evangelize? He said, yeah, that's part of it. But the other part of it is when the toilet is stuck, I fix it. When there's a pothole on the road, I fix it. When there's something that needs to be done, like some tree needs to, to be cut, we do it. I, you know, I don't have a job description. It's just what God calls us to do, we do. And I'm reminded in the past few days when the, when the tree branches fell down and all these other things around us, Uh, some people up and came and said we'll cut it up it's not a case where people said yeah we've hired someone you know we've got maintenance worker we've got staff they'll sort it out pastor will come out with his axe and fix it no but in any case they came here and they're coming to the church on a regular basis and they're praying or in this case the temple they come to the temple to pray and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and lo and behold as they come there they meet this person lame from birth verse two now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts now um many historians have tried to figure out where exactly is this gate called beautiful okay a beautiful gate or gate called Beautiful. And uh, the gates around Israel at that time, in Jerusalem at that time, were mostly made from gold or silver work, and certain families would contribute towards the the beautification of that gate. But it is rumored that this gate was an unusual gate in the sense that it was made out of bronze rather than gold and silver. Uh, But that's not really the point of this text either. The point of this was he's at the gate, and so there's certain things that are stated there as a narrative which you have to read between the line. If I place a person at the front gate, you might ask, why at the front gate? Why not at our front door? Why not here at the altar? Because the closer you are to the cross, the more visible it is that in your holy moments as you are praying up to God, Lord, what shall I do? Oh, poor person in front of you. (laughs) What do you think? But this person was at the gate of the temple before entering, which means anyone who would go through that gate and the numerous other gates, so it's not everyone who would see him, but anyone who passes through this gate would see him at this particular gate begging. Leviticus 21 tells us that those who are lame or who are blemished, in other words, if they have their face disfigured, uh, if they are blind, if they are lame, they are barred from coming into the temple. Another, one, another form of disfigurement is for eunuchs, those who uh, have encountered that kind of uh, emasculation. Okay. They too are barred. And so the significance of some of the stories where you talk about the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading about this and how something has changed in what Christ has done is significant to them. So here's a lame man. He stops at the gate because that's the furthest he's allowed to go. He's not allowed to go past the gate because of his lameness all the way from when he was young or from birth. You stop at the beautiful gate. You see the people. You hear the prayers, you smell the incense and all the offerings and the community has gone in there to meet their maker but you sit at the fringes unable to go in. So I read that again. Verse 2, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temples. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. How many of us, when we encounter a poor person, uh, whether they're smelly, whether they smell drunk, or whether they are blind, lame, or so forth, actually look at them, face to face, into their eyes? I realised, as a person, I don't often look into people's eyes either. Maybe it's an Asian thing, I don't know. I recall at a time when I was looking into uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, Her eyes uh, I would gaze longingly into it And she would blush and turn away Now I look and she's like What are you staring at me for? (laughs) She wants something or what? But there is a certain significance When we are looking at a person I recall the child psychologist Tell me that It's one thing to shout out Your child's name It's another thing to hold them touch them, and look into their eyes and speak to them. Because when you do that, you're saying, I see you, I know you, you are here. And from me, my soul, to yours, I am communicating something to you. But you will find people who have been affected, disaffected, torn down, broken down, that they have no ability to meet a person face to face. They are ashamed, they are shy, I don't know, but effectively, at a sense of identity, they are unable to meet your gaze. And Peter and John are looking straight at this person and something is happening, I presume, in there, that the Holy Spirit has gone and is with them and is telling them, look at this person, I want you to see this person. And he tells them, look up. And, and this person, although he, although he looks up, the text doesn't say that he met their gaze. The text basically says he was expectantly hoping for something. Do you know how you are able to look at someone without actually looking at them? I do it often. Uh, I, I look at someone and I notice, yes, there are people, but I'm not really looking at people. Because when I do look at people, then I notice ah, so-and-so, this person, and st- things come to remind me about this person. It is not just about the person, but their environment, their ent- entity, their family, their struggles, their joys, their children, you know, a whole library of information comes in. So there is a looking that is going on in there. So the first point I want to bring across to you In the ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes into us, when Peter and John demonstrate this particular activity where they looked at these people, are we looking at the people that we are ministering to? Is this a mechanical charity that we give or is it a personal encounter? And I find this is a particularly consistent theme in Christianity, in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, that there is this personal encounter at the deep to deep, uh, mystery to mystery, soul to soul, spirit to spirit, speaking about a personal encounter. It is not a mechanical charity where I'm just throwing money around, don't care where it lands. And I've realized uh, that in the times of recent years, uh, ministry has changed somewhat where you have people like World Vision or even uh, some of our friends here who are giving towards the work that we do in Cambodia. Numerous friends that I have in the past would be giving money to institutions, but after a couple of years, they stop because they say, I don't know what they're doing with it. I know it's a good cause, but I'm just giving money. But what they have not stopped in doing is when they give to people whom they are aware of and what they know about and so when we give them reports and say uh, this money that you're given for so and so this is where they're at that connection is deeper that connection is to a real person I know I know sometimes World Vision I've got a couple of kids that I sponsor World Vision will ask me would you like to travel there and I said uh, a bit hard Mongolia very far uh, quite costly in various different parts but they say it'd be wonderful if you write a letter to them it'd be wonderful if you know but I read everything that they send to me and I see their pictures we do this in Cambodia we do this with Orang Asli children we do this with all the various ministries but how much of our ministry is mechanical how much of it was personal and to give it a little bit into context you remember when Jesus was walking in the story about Jairus uh, What happens before Jesus uh, meets Jairus' daughter? There is a woman with an issue of blood, uh, 12 years, right? And that woman says, if only I touch Jesus' robe, I will be healed, which she does. She touches it and she immediately feels healed. What does Jesus say? What does the text say about Jesus? Jesus says, I felt power going out of me. He turns around and he says, Who touched me? And his apostles next to him say, and I, I'm paraphrasing this, you know, Jesus, you crazy. <laughs> Everyone here is crowding around you, jostling and pushing, and you're asking, Who touched you? But he was quite adamant. He says, Who touched me? And this woman knew that she had been healed, and, he says, and she comes up and she says, Why? Now, think about that. The deed is done. The woman wanted to be healed. She was healed. Jesus had done it even though he had not, you know, sort of like said, intentionally or so forth. Why did he do this? And the only reason that you can come up with is because he wanted to know who this person is. But more importantly, if we acknowledge that he is son of God and he knows all things, he wanted this woman to know that he wanted to know her. Who she was. So it's a thought for us. One of the things when I came into our church and we said what mission work do we do? He says, so "Oh, we go into this village, uh, we do certain works, and then we come back out." And so my next question was, "Okay, uh, who are the leaders there, and who are the families that we know?" And the answer they came back was, "Not to know, not too sure because we kind of do this and we're brought in by certain people." We don't know. And we said, we can't do mission that way. Work for us in a community means we build relationships, we build friendships. Discipleship occurs as a one-to-one, individual, soul-to-soul exercise. It's not something where I do a dental clinic for 100 people and I've done my work. No, that government also can do. Anyone can do that but there is something that goes and happens at a spiritual level when you begin to connect at a heart-to-heart individual level. And so where are you at in your ministry? Is it a case where we come to church and say, I happily give my tithes and my offerings and my pledges, Uh, I leave it to the church to figure out what to do with it, but uh, I don't really want to know very much about where it goes to, who are the people, why should I support them? Or when I give, I don't want to know because all these personal interactions are not for me. We need to be confronted by this. Where the ministry at the spiritual level has always been at a personal level, one-to-one. I'm not saying that there is no place for giving to an organization or institution. But even if you do that, you should be finding out more about the people in charge and what they do And whether they're doing a decent job and supporting what they do. But let me move on. The text continues to go and say this, verse 5 and 6. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Very short sentence, not very protracted uh, prayers and so forth, but a key difference between how Jesus heals and how Peter now heals is the authority under which he comes from. Jesus, when he prays, do you notice that the big difference about this, for example, when he prays uh, about the storm, he says, peace, be still. He doesn't go on the basis of under the authority of Isaiah or Ezekiel or under so-and-so. He commands them directly. And so Peter, in this form, is doing the first miracle empowered by the Holy Spirit after Pentecost under the authority of Jesus and pointing all the way back to Jesus of Nazareth. Not of his own, not of his own ability, but to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Specific mention of Nazareth there, because if I'd say Jesus Christ, you're like, yeah, we know Jesus Christ, but why does the record say Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Because every Jew at that time would say, can any good come out of Nazareth? Is there anything good that comes out of it? So imagine, you know, you, you go, say I come from Malaysia and I go to Korea and I, I say to them, where are you from? and say, I'm from Penang. Where? <laughs> can any good come out of Penang? And Jesus of Nazareth, small, remote, distant places, and you know, when I tell the orang asli, Kamu datang dari mana? Ya? Uh, labu. Labu mana? post Tempat kecil, Orang temua tak tahu. I ask them where they come from, and they say it's a very small place, very remote, and all that stuff. I said, well, yeah, Jesus came from Nazareth. It was also a very small, remote fishing village. dead end. Well, you Well, know, a farming community, less so uh, a fishing village fishing villages in, in Galilee but it is in the authority in the character in the name in the person of Jesus Christ so what did Peter give? not silver but not gold but what he gave was he gave wholeness that comes through faith in the name of Jesus Christ Wholeness. I had a friend of mine who uh, qualified as a medical doctor. Uh, he, he became a doctor because he encountered missionary doctors. He was based in Australia. He encountered missionary doctors who would fly out and they would go to remote places and do this medical work. So he aspired to be that and he became a doctor. But after he became a doctor and practicing for a few years, he decided, I want to do my theological studies. So one day I sat down with him, uh, it was Dr. Peter Lau. I said to him, hey Peter, you're a doctor, what made you become a, a professor of theology? And he said, do you know, I, I, could, I could sort of like do the medical thing in the hospital, but I realised that you can possibly help people to heal their bodies, but it's a totally different thing trying to heal their hearts and their spirit. That only God can do. And so he decided to pursue it that way. He was pursuing a wholeness of the spirit, mind, body, and soul, not just a resolution of the body. But for this particular person, this wholeness effectively meant they would be able to now walk. And you recall, I mentioned to you just now, Leviticus chapter 21 has specific injunctions that say if you have a blemish, blind, lame, Uh, physically scarred he would be barred from entering the temple fellowship with the community in the most intimate and holy of places but because now he would be able to walk and no longer had this blemish the shame has been rolled away and he would be able to come finally through the gate for the first time in his life What I do have, I give to you. It is really a faith in the name of Jesus Christ. As much as we can heal people, as much as we might possibly be able to do all these miracles, as much as many of our missions work does developmental uh, upliftment of people, the true gift that we give people is faith in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ that saves. I think it's the one gift that we can give to our children that is worth more than all that we ever have. As much as I think that I would be so elated to be able to give healing to people, and if you've ever met faith healers, people who heal based on on signs and wonders, I've had one very frank conversation with them. He says, Uh, have you seen uh, much happen? He says, yes, we've seen many conversions occur, but not necessarily discipleship. They are converted, they believe, and after a period of time, they fall away. Because they've been given a sign that says, walk that way, and they walk that way for a while. But discipleship means follow that way, and they don't follow that way. Because they're hoping for more and more signs that keep telling them, this is the way. What is this gift that we can give to others? It is an example as a sign to others that we can have faith in Jesus. That is the one sign and the gift that we are able to give to others. Verse 7 continues, Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up to his feet and began to walk and he went with them. His ankles became strong. I don't know how many of you have that uh, gift of healing. I don't know whether I do. People tell me, yes, it has helped and it has worked. But I'm not sure if I have that same kind of faith that Peter and John do, that you can grab someone who's been lame from young, yank them up. My fear is I yank them up and they collapse in a bigger heap. And maybe that's my conversation with God going on. But I feel that my giftings are in different areas. So if you feel that, I don't think I can do this, yeah, that's all right. Because to some is given the ability to heal to some, it's been given the ability to preach. To some, has been given the ability to pastor and teach. Different giftings. We don't beat ourselves up about it. But if I'm called to teach, then I better well teach. If I'm called to heal, then I better well heal. We do what we're called to do according to the giftings and the faith that God gives to us. And so there is a certain element of putting yourself out and saying, I'm standing on this faith Not on my faith, but on the God behind my faith. And that God is a mighty awesome faith, even if my faith is small as a mustard seed. The verses continue. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Do we have this faith that we can stand on? Peter is acting on his faith in Jesus Christ. And might I say, at this point in time, when you, have, when you go for all these healing rallies and faith rallies, and they say, you must believe, you must have faith, you must give up everything, then only you'll be healed. Here's one example where the person knew nothing about this. They just saw Peter, they just saw John, and Peter and John says, get up. And he helped him up to his feet. You don't see Peter going, do you believe in Jesus? (laughs) Do you have faith in Jesus? I'm about to do this. You better have faith in him or else you're going to crumple back down. No. God will heal whom he heals. And you may or may not be that vessel by which God does it. If God tells you to do it by faith, do it by all means. I've been called to go into mission and certain elements of work which people say, that's crazy. But I did it because there was a certain conviction in the Spirit that says, God wants me to do this. And I can't explain it to you. It happens. It's a mystery. But when we do it, we act in faith and we allow God to do the rest and things fall in place. Do you know one of the things that have been lifting me up in the past few days is I've been receiving messages from old friends in Surumban. Uh on, the, on Friday yesterday, in the midst of all the traffic jams, they were gathering together at seven, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning and they were heading off into the Orang Asli villages, work that we had began seven, eight years ago. And they were continuing this work. That was a work of faith. We never knew where this was. We never knew where it was leading to. But it continues on, and people still keep going and doing these things willingly. I've not seen this happen very often. Youth, adults, doctors, they just go in and they're happy to go in. And the Lord provides each and every moment. They act on this faith. Will we have the faith to stand on? Just in the same way that in order to walk on water you need to step out of the boat in order to stand you need to get up. Faith only grows in the face of testing and to some extent suffering. And so if you are feeling very comfortable in your faith and says I really don't want to try this because I don't know what's going to happen your faith will remain where it is on the ground it's not going to take off it's not going to fly and i've said this before and i'll I'll kind of say it again if you want to see numbers in a church entertain people give them what they want concerts do that you can have hundred thousand people coming to a concert absent and devoid of god and they would come pay money for it if i ask people to come to trinity and pay money to come you think people will come I doubt it, although some places in Singapore, yeah, they do that. So you could grow numbers by entertaining people, but you only grow faith when it's tested, when it's stretched, when you go through suffering, and when you go through the valleys. You find that your faith really grows deep at that moment. So, where are you at? Do you want a comfortable faith? Or do you want a faith that's growing? Do you want a faith that's standing up and walking on its own two feet? Or do you want to continue having people carry you every day to the church? I say this to my young friends in church as well, second generation, third generation. They come to church because people are carrying them to the temple gate and they're, they're lovely the kids tell us in all honesty pastor teacher i'm only here because my parents bring me here or my grandparents drag me here i'd rather be somewhere else i'd rather be sleeping and it's an honest statement it's a very true statement for me too for a large period of time sunday was the best time and all the cartoons were on on tv and then the parents say, go to church <laughs> But there comes a day when I have to stand on my own two feet and stand on my own faith, not a borrowed faith, and to be able to walk through the gates myself and begin to worship God. And this is a challenge for all our friends and all our people. We can carry them to the gate, but they need to be made whole in faith to be able to walk in on their own. Going forward, Let me leave you some thoughts about this. Is your ministry personal? Or are you at a point where you say, I've been scarred too many times and I really don't have time to get to know people. It's too painful. I did ask a doctor once, he says, you know, some of these people that come to you, they are church members, your friends. How do you deal with this? They say, well, there's a certain element of professionalism where we, we say what we need to do and we do what we do and we're... We cut off our emotion. But then he said, Honestly, uh, when the person passes away and I, I, I'm able to switch off my professional mode and I realize, hey, these are my friends <laughs> that are standing around. This is so and so whom I had a relationship, had coffee with. That's when it hits me and it hurts. And I said, So what do you do? He says, I'm tempted to shut it off again and go back into professional mode because it hurts, but I don't. I said, that's good. Because the moment you do that, your heart gets hardened and scarred and you don't want to feel anymore. But it's when you feel that you care and when you care that you have the ability to love. Love is very, very personal. And we know that out of our own love, we do not have the strength to do this. We need God to be able to pour that out in us. So, my challenge to you will you make this ministry personal? Get to know the people that you are helping out. And, I, and, and if you're wondering, you know, I'm not involved in the church, well, yeah, maybe you have your workplace. Do you know what's happening with your colleagues and your staff? what's happening at their personal, individual levels, the struggles that they're going through. Nobody starts their day and saying, "Ah, today is my day to be the most absolute jerk that I can be. No one starts that way. But things conspire, and will you be one of those people that personally gets to know them say, let me help you stand. Let me help you see that you are precious and special that you see them and you know them and you're walking alongside with them secondly what is your faith in is your faith based on the things that we have or is your faith in the greater thing this wholeness that comes to us even when our body is breaking down because i tell you this although he was healed and he was able to walk into the temple At some point in time, things are going to break down again and eventually he will pass away. These are signs that point us to a greater reality. Figure out that reality. Don't rely so much on the signs because the signs will fade. Our faith, no matter how small, ought to be in a great God. Hold on to that. Thirdly, when was the last time God came through for you? More importantly, when was the last time you tested and said, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this and what you call me to do, I'll do it. And again, if you're wondering and saying, I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do, maybe you ought to read the Bible then (laughs) because it tells you what you ought to do. That is the Word of God alive for you. And faith only grows when you put it to test, when you stand on it, Will you be there. Three points, very good Methodist sermon. (laughs) But let me add a fourth one that is a bit of a secret hidden thing. Throughout the whole gospel here and even throughout Jesus' time, Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. And here you have mention of Peter and John. And although John doesn't say very much, he's a silent person who's there. But the writer mentions Peter, John, Peter, John, Peter, Peter, John, Peter. to point out the fact to you that this is a team ministry you don't do this solo as a pastor there are many times when i have to do counseling and i have to make sure that people are aware that this is going on and so this bonus point for you to think about is who are you accountable to and who are you partnering with in walking this journey together One of these writers who said the number one place when pastors go and travel on their own and stay in these commercial hotels is that many business hotels also accommodate the sexual needs of these travelers. And so they travel, especially I know in Europe and many other parts, there's always the SG channel or SX channel, the XXX channel. And hotel guys will say, yeah, sometimes pastor's conference, we still got people go for all these kind of uh, channels as well. That's what happens when you stay on your room alone and there's no one watching you and you're not accountable to anybody. And so when we know ourselves and we know what's going on, avoid these lonely things. You're hungry, you're alone, you're lonely and you're tired and you're tempted to go down this path. Will you find someone who will be accountable to you and you will be accountable to them so that in the ministry that you put your trust in God, you also have faith in each other? Shall we pray? Dear Lord, in your mercy and grace, many words have gone forth, but may your word and your word alone remain in our hearts to change us, to challenge us, to disturb us, but above all, Lord, to grow our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this and ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Friends, let's prepare our hearts for this time of Holy Communion. Let me invite you to uh, come with thanksgiving to the Lord. Let me invite the ushers, uh, communion stewards, to come forward.